Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we, we pray because we stand in need of so much help right now. Lord, if our, if our minds were to fail us, we, we couldn't even read. If our memory were to fail us, we, we couldn't make connections between what we learned last week and what we learned this week and, and all of the knowledge we bring to this. Lord, if uh, you were not with us right now, this text would not be discernible because the scriptures say that these things are discerned spiritually through the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, in our, our weakness, we pray that you would come. In our limitations, we pray that you would manifest your presence as we hear the scriptures um, unfolded for us. I, I pray especially, Lord, that you would um, fill me up today and pour me out and use me for this, the sake of this text and the life of this congregation. You build your church one verse at a time and these verses are a treasure trove if we will give them some attention. Would you come now and provide the gift of illumination that we would see what's really here in our Bibles and grow by believing it, being filled with your spirit and moving out into this mission field that you've given us now. We ask you these things and we depend on you now. For Jesus' sake, we ask it. Amen. Well, this time I do invite you to open a Bible to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 12, beginning in verse 4. If you haven't already, if you'd like to use one of the red Bibles, it's page 871 in those Bibles in front of you. The Gospel according to Luke, chapter 12, beginning in verse 4. If you were to ask me um, if I'd recommend a single book, single favorite book outside the Bible on the topic of overcoming anxiety, um, it wouldn't take me more than about three seconds to give you the answer. The answer to that question is When People Are Big and God is Small by Ed Welch. Now, if you're familiar with the author and the title, then you know exactly why this book ranks so highly for me as a resource. And if you're unfamiliar with the resource, all I can say is that I've, with a high degree of confidence, I have to say you, you have a lot to look forward to. Um, if you're someone, that is, if you're human and you acknowledge the struggle with fear and anxiety, this book would be a blessing to you. When people are big and God is small. In the book, uh, Welch does two things, I think, that are, emblem, that are symptomatic of, of books that do that, uh, that are good Christian books. The first thing is that this resource is absolutely brimming with the Bible. On every last page you read, the author makes it clear that he is leaning hard on Holy Scripture and that he's interpreting Scripture faithfully as it relates to this topic. So he's biblical, but at the same time, he's relentlessly practical, um, uncomfortably so. He refuses to let the subject matter just remain on the shelf. Rather, he brings it home to the reader again and again for practical application. And for those who have not yet read it, let me just give you a taste of how this man writes and why his words are so helpful in order to set the table for the topic that we have in front of us this morning. So in the opening chapter of When People Are Big and God is Small, Welch um, begins by helping the reader to diagnose the disease of the fear of man in their heart. And what follows are a list of brief yes-no questions. Now, you don't need to respond out loud. Uh, don't raise your hand or even nod. Just answer within your own heart to these questions. You ready? 
Have you ever struggled with peer pressure? Are you overcommitted? Do you find it hard to say no even when wisdom dictates that you should? Do you need something from your spouse? Do you need your spouse to listen to you, respect you? Is self-esteem a critical concern for you? Do you ever feel as if you might be exposed as an imposter? Are you always second-guessing decisions because of what other people might think? Are you afraid of making mistakes that will make you look bad in other people's eyes? Do you feel empty or meaningless? Do you experience love hunger? Do you get easily embarrassed? Do you ever lie, especially little white lies? Or what about those cover-ups where you're not technically lying, but... Are you jealous of other people? Do other people make you angry or depressed? Are they making you crazy? Do you avoid people? Now, to anyone who hasn't said yes at this point, Welch asked this question. Have all of these descriptions missed the mark? When you compare yourself with other people, do you feel good about yourself? Perhaps the most dangerous form of the fear of man is the successful fear of man. Such people think that they've made it, that they have more than other people, that they feel good about themselves, but their lives are still defined by, guess what? Other people. Finally, Welch knocks the ball out of the park with this observation. Does this list include you yet? If not, consider just one word, evangelism. Have you ever been too timid to share your faith in Christ because of what people might think of you? Welch concludes, gotcha. The fear of man is such a part of the human fabric that we should check for a pulse if someone denies it. I love that last sentence. That last sentence is worth the price of the book. The fear of man is such a part of our human fabric we should check for a pulse if someone denies it. Look, here's the, here's the big idea today. Ours is an anxious and anemic age. And so our mission and vision demands supernatural courage and power. Ours is an anxious and anemic age, and so our mission and vision demands supernatural courage and power. That is, the culture that we live in is an anxious one. We live amidst a fearful people. We worry. We just do. Furthermore, we live in the midst of a culture that is anemic. That is, we are beset by weakness. We break easily. We quit quickly. We are emotionally fragile people. And so our mission to be and make disciples of Jesus, not to mention our 2020 vision, deeply depend upon the reception of supernatural courage and supernatural power. And to that end, we have two points today. Both of them are drawn from the words of our Savior, and both of them are designed to assist us in cultivating courage and power. Ours is an anxious and anemic age, and so our mission and vision demands supernatural courage, supernatural power. So... Point number one, thank God that Jesus says the single greatest antidote to our fear of man is the fear of the Lord. Thank God that Jesus says the single greatest antidote to our fear of man is the fear of the Lord. Follow along with me if you would and I'll read Luke chapter 12 verses 4 to 7. Luke 12, 4 to 7, Jesus says, I tell you my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. 
Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, verses 4 to 12, they hang together this morning because each of these two paragraphs begins with the phrase, I tell you. You see that? Verse 4, Jesus says, I tell you. Once again, verse 8, I tell you. Now, a reminder, too, that here in verses 4 to 12, he's still talking to his disciples, isn't he? Recall last week, chapter 12, verse 1, that Luke writes, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people were gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first. By the time we reach verse 4, he's only three verses into his teaching. It's a teaching that begins in verse 1 of chapter 12 and extends at least clear to verse 53 of chapter 12, if not all the way to verse 59 at the end of the chapter. All that to say, Jesus in this moment is still addressing his disciples. And what does he call his disciples in verse 4? He calls them friends. My friends. Chapter 12, verse 4, Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you, my friends. Now we need to pause here briefly because this is, this is wonderful and this is rare in Scripture. It's so rare, in fact, that we have only one other place in the Gospels, a clear-cut place where Jesus is talking to his disciples and describes them as his friends. That other place happens in the upper room in John chapter 15, verses 13 to 15. In John 15, 13 to 15, Jesus says to his disciples, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, and you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Now in that instance, at the upper room at the table there, Jesus was undoubtedly seeking to put some steel in the backbone of his disciples, right? Because he was about to be taken away from them and they were about to undergo a, a major test of their faith. And here in Luke twelve four, I think it's the same idea. The reason he calls them my friends it's because he's about to outline for them just what their discipleship is going to cost them. So let's read all of verse 4 now. Luke 12, 4, Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. I love the comment of the Puritan pastor, Master Matthew Henry, who says on this verse, he says, Christ's disciples are his friends. He calls them his friends. And he gives them this friendly advice. Those who Christ owns for his friends need not be afraid of any enemies. Those whom Christ owns for his friends need not be afraid of any enemies. I do think that's what's going on here in this verse. That's why Jesus calls them his friends right here. Because of what it's going to cost them very dearly to remain his friends. Now what's fascinating, of course, is the way that he he relativizes the price that they are going to have to pay. I mean, aren't we inclined to believe that martyrdom is a rather expensive sacrifice? All of the disciples underwent it except for Judas and John. And Judas killed himself. John died as an old man. All of them were martyred except for those two. 
we're inclined to think that martyrdom is a rather expensive sacrifice. But Jesus rejects the premise. Look at it again. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more than they can do. At this point, we're thinking, what else could somebody possibly do? They've killed you. Once more, Matthew Henry's quite good here as he brazenly comments, let them do their worst. After that, there's nothing more that they can do. Those can do Christ's disciples no real harm and therefore ought not to be dreaded. Who can but kill the body? For they only send the body to its rest and the soul to its joy and that the sooner. I mean, that's true. If you're a Christian, the, the worst thing another person could possibly do for you is arguably the best thing they could possibly do for you. To give your body its rest and to usher your soul into everlasting joy. That's the worst that somebody could do in opposition to you in this life. Think about it. After killing your body, there's nothing else that they can do. Jesus' point is, don't fear someone like that with that limited amount of power. In verse 5, Jesus is anything but unclear that there is more that could be done. Because you see, the problem is not fear. The problem is misplaced fear, right? Verse 5, I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Which means that FDR was almost right. In 1932, Franklin Delano Roosevelt gave his inaugural presidential address where he famously said what? The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. That's almost right. But since almost only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades, we need to tweak the saying. It's not true that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Rather, according to Jesus, the only thing we have to fear is God Himself. Notice in verse 5 that Jesus tells us that God kills people. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear Him who after He has killed. I can't read that verse without hearing echoes of Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39, where the Lord says to His people, See now that I... Even I am He. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none who can deliver out of my hand. And you say, God doesn't do that. God doesn't kill people. He permits the death of people. He allows for the death of people. He doesn't actually kill people, right? Well, tell that to Lot's wife. Tell it to Ur and Onan and the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, tell it to all of the firstborn in Egypt. Tell it to Korah and Nabal and Uzzah and David and Bathsheba's baby boy and Ananias and Sapphira and Herod. That's a partial list. Need I go on? God kills people. But according to Jesus, that's not the half of it because after he has killed, God and God alone has the authority to cast into hell. Unlike anybody else, God has that authority. Now, what's so stunning here for the believer on this side of Calvary in the empty tomb is this. If you know Jesus, the God who 
ought to be against you is actually for you. In the gospel, he's for you. And he's for you because in the cross, he was against Jesus. Psalm 103 verse 10 reminds us that God does not treat us as our sins deserve. If you're a believer, that's true of you today. He does not treat you as your sins deserve. And if you want to know why, the answer is that God does not treat us as our sins deserve because God treated his son as our sins deserve. That's why. So you see how Jesus is motivating here. It's absolutely countercultural. The world says, don't be afraid. You can be brave. Jesus says, don't be afraid. I'll give you something to be afraid about. And you know, the picture that comes to my mind here is I picture Aslan from C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Imagine Aslan pulling you close with one of his mighty, massive paws. Fingernails like razor blades, longer than you've ever seen. And if he had a mind to do it, he could slice you to ribbons yesterday. And you hear him breathing, like practically purring beside you, you know. And he could end you. He could cast you headlong to oblivion, but he doesn't. Why? Because he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He died for you. When the one who should kill you and consign you to eternal punishment instead loves you, in fact loves you so much that evidently he knows how many hairs are on your head, that changes how we deal with the fear of man, doesn't it? We believe verses 6 and 7, don't we? We take those literally. I sure hope we do. Jesus says in chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered, which I realize is a more stunning feat for some than others, right? But he knows every hair on your head. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, friends, we've got to move on to point two, but can we just agree that the fear of man, particularly as it impacts the forward motion of our local church's mission to be and make disciples of Jesus, our fear of man needs to die. In view of the terror of what God could do to us, and in fact, if we're in Christ, will not do to us ever, 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 can we just agree that the fear of man deserves a decent burial? Right? The gospel is true. And if you know Jesus, you're safe within the walls. You're safe within the walls of the gospel. It should free you to live a wild life of mission for Jesus. Ours is an anxious and anemic age, and so our mission and vision demand supernatural courage and power. So first, thank God that Jesus says the single greatest antidote to our fear of man is the fear of the Lord. Fear the Lord, and you need not fear any man. Second point today. Ours is an anxious and anemic age, and so our mission and vision demands supernatural courage and power. So thank God that Jesus says the single greatest advantage in our evangelism is the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Thank God that Jesus says the single greatest advantage in our evangelism is the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Look with me once more at Luke chapter 12. This time it's verses 8 to 12. Luke 12, 8 to 12. Jesus says, 
And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. And the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So the single greatest advantage in our evangelism is the personal work of the Holy Spirit. Notice we're saying here, notice what we're not saying. We're not saying that the single greatest advantage in our evangelism is how many programs our church can offer the West Tonka area. We're not saying the single greatest advantage in our evangelism is how clever we are or how cool we are or how smart we are. No, according to Jesus, the single greatest advantage in our evangelism is the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Now, interestingly, I'd already drafted the wording of point two when it occurred to me that this is exactly what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit in John 6, 16, verse 7, when he tells his disciples, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. It's to your advantage. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. Who is he talking about there? The Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit. So according to Jesus, the single greatest advantage in our evangelism is the person work of the Holy Spirit. Now, why is that true? Before we get there, take a look at verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9, Jesus says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God, but the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So the question here isn't, do you have Jesus in your heart? Which is a fine question, by the way. It's just not the question here. The question here is, do you have Jesus on your mouth? Do you have Jesus on your lips? In other words, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So do you talk about him often? Ever. You know, we tend to talk about those that we love. We just do. One of my favorite pastors in the, in the nation today, particularly on this issue of leading the church with regard to mission and evangelism, is a, a pastor by the name of Jeff Vanderstelt. Vanderstelt once said this. He said, I think that many believers are just not that impressed with Jesus. They're not overcome with affection for him. I've never had to tell people to talk about someone they love. They know how. And if you have to train someone to talk about someone they love, they don't love him. Or at least... They don't know them that well. I appreciate his candor, don't you? Even more, I hope you appreciate Jesus' candor here. He just lays it out, doesn't he? And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge him before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied by the angels of God. Which brings up a question. Like, didn't Peter deny Jesus three times? Will Peter be denied before the angels of God at the judgment seat of Christ? My answer is that I don't think so. I don't think so for two reasons. The first reason is that Peter repented. Like immediately. I mean, the text says he wept bitterly. The Spirit struck him with a tremendous amount of conviction in that moment. 
And more than that, upon his repentance, that conversation on the beach in John 21, Jesus restored him. For every one of his denials, Jesus offered him restoration. Peter experienced repentance and restoration. And though Peter denied Jesus three times, I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. The second reason I don't think this is what Jesus is talking about is because of what he says in verse 10. So let's just go there. Verse 10, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So notice that Jesus, uh, Peter, denied Jesus. He repented, was restored, and forgiven. In other words, I think he did what Jesus describes here in the first half of verse 10. At the fire, outside of uh, the place where Jesus was being tried, Peter spoke a word against the Son of Man. He denied him three times. And just as Jesus says, he was forgiven. But the second half of verse 10 describes something else. Um, here in Luke 12, 10, second half, Jesus is pointing to what we call the unforgivable sin. So what is this? Well, we spoke of it some weeks ago in chapter 11, didn't we? And at this point, I'll, I'm just going to cite Daryl Bach, one of my favorite commentators on Luke, because I think he explains it so well. Speaking of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, here's what he writes. Blasphemy of the Spirit is not so much an act of rejection as it is persistent and decisive rejection of the Spirit's message and work concerning Jesus. The difference between blaspheming the Son of Man and blaspheming the Spirit is that the blasphemy of the Son is an instant rejection, while the blasphemy of the Spirit is a permanent, decisive rejection. I think he's onto something there. I don't think that, for example, the blasphemy of the Spirit is a single weak need moment of cowardice. That's what Peter experienced. He repented and he was restored. As we said a couple of weeks back, the blasphemy of the Spirit is attributing the work of Christ to the work of Satan or the work of Satan to the work of Christ. So when you think blasphemy of the Spirit, don't think Peter. You know who you ought to think? Think Judas. Think Judas. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If you're a Christ follower that grieves over whether or not you've committed the unpardonable sin, I tell you now on the authority of Scripture, you haven't. Not if you're grieved over it. It's a God-given signal that you belong to Him. You, like Peter, may know what it means to speak a word against the Son of Man, and I will not pretty it up. It is a terrible thing to be Coward, cowardly, be filled with cowardice when you have an opportunity to say a good word for Jesus. It's a terrible thing. Shrinking back in fear over Jesus instead of opening your mouth boldly with Aslan at your side, right? But Jesus makes it perfectly clear upon repentance, it's a forgivable sin. Have you blown a recent opportunity? I bet you have. God opened a door for you a mile wide to bear witness to Christ and you just didn't take it. And my advice on the authority of Holy Scripture to you is repent. Grieve your sin and then turn from your sin. Pick yourself up and get back in the game. I'm not sure that I'd have the confidence to say it were not written plain as day in my Bible in verse 10. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. 
If you sin, God is faithful to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness if you confess it. Finally, look with me at verse 12. It's, it's the point of point two. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. In other words, the single greatest advantage in our evangelism is the person and work of the Holy Spirit. When you are, uh, whether you're counseling another person or whether you're evangelizing another person, the most important person in that context is not you and is not the other person. It's the third person, third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. It is impossible to overstate the supreme importance of the Holy Spirit's lot role in our lives as it relates to our pursuit of people in our list of five. It would be impossible to overstate the importance of it. Evangelism is an impossibility without him. It always has been. In fact, at the tail end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus warns his disciples not to go anywhere until the Holy Spirit has descended at Pentecost. Luke 24, 46 to 49, Jesus tells his disciples, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name among all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Isn't that fascinating? Don't go anywhere without the Holy Spirit. Or the way that the Apostle John puts it in his version of the story. John chapter 20, verses 19 to 22. It was the scripture reading we heard earlier. On the evening of the first day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And what did he do? The doors were locked for fear. For fear. So what does he do? He breathes on them and imparts who? The Holy Spirit. There it is again. Clearly the single greatest advantage in the apostles' evangelism was the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So what about non-apostolic types? What about us? Well, it's the same today. You may feel as though you are stuck at some sort of disadvantage this week as you seek to make a racket for Jesus where you live or where you work or where you go to school, but it only seems that way. It's not that way in reality. Think about it this way. In reality, if you're a Christian, you have the third person of the Trinity. You have the Holy Spirit. You have God himself inside you. He is living on the interior of your life. That's an advantage. That's a huge advantage. In fact, in an evangelistic conversation, the deck is stacked entirely in your favor. You know, the Holy Spirit can convict folks on your list of five of their sin. I mean, that's not, even an unf- that's not even a fair advantage. That's totally unfair. The Holy Spirit can do the heavy lifting that you and I cannot do. He can and will convict the world of its sin and its guilt. John 16, 8 tells us that. And only the Holy Spirit can do it. That's an advantage. Only the Holy Spirit can cause the folks on your list of five to be born again. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Only the Holy Spirit can do, can do that, and he does. If you will get on your knees for your list of five and move your feet toward your list of five and open your mouth to your list of five, he'll do it. And it's right here that we have one of the sweetest promises in all of Holy Scripture, verse 12. I'll read it again. Jesus says, When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious 
about how you should defend yourself, what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. That's an advantage. That's an advantage. If you love Jesus, you will say a good word and you'll say the right word for him as he opens the door for you. Don't worry about it. The text says don't sweat it. He'll help you through that too. The single greatest advantage in our evangelism is the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Well, let's review. Ours is an anemic and anxious age, so our mission and vision demands supernatural courage and power. Thank God that Jesus says two things. First, the single greatest antidote to our fear of man is the fear of the Lord. And the single greatest advantage in our evangelism is the person and work of the Holy Spirit. It's breathtaking, really, when you stop to think about it. Though God is wonderfully and undoubtedly sovereign in the salvation of sinners, it is just as true to affirm that the only people on the planet to whom he entrusts this message is the church. It's us. And if the church doesn't get the word out, who will? And please don't look to the person next to you because I guarantee they're looking right back at you. If not you, who? If not now, when? Today is the day of salvation. And you may be with us today and you don't count yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus. You may be with us today and you came in this morning counting yourself a Christian, but as the worship gathering proceeded and as the Lord's Supper was served and as the word is being preached, it's become clear to you that you're not. You thought you were, but you're not. The first thing you need to know is that you are in the right place. And what's more, we believe that your being here is no mistake. It's the good design of a sovereign God, a wise creator God who made you. And he made you to glorify him and enjoy him forever. And you know those are, that's something that you're not doing right now. In fact, you are rebelling against him. You've been using him and worshiping other things. And the Bible describes this rebellion as cosmic treason. It's sin against God. And I don't need to tell you because Jesus already did a few moments ago in Luke chapter 12, verse 5, that God is not only justified in doing so, but God has the authority after killing your body to cast you into hell forever. But here's the good news, and it's really, really good news. God's sent his own son Jesus into this world to live a perfect life. It's the life that you and I can't live. And he died a sacrificial death on the cross. It's a death that you and I deserve to die. And in that death, he absorbed the penalty for your sin and mine. Three days after his death, Jesus defeated death itself as he rose from the grave. He's worthy of your trust. Jesus will justify you from your sin, but he will not justify the least sin in you. He died that your sin might be pardoned and that you might know power to live beyond your sin. He's worthy of your trust. So turn, turn away from your rebellion and toward Christ by grace through faith in Jesus. Be born again today. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're, we're told the statistic is something like 365 times in the Bible. You tell us not to be afraid. It's the single most frequent commandment in Holy Scripture. And if it is the single most frequent commandment in Holy Scripture, then it must be the greatest malfunction of our lives. 
And we confess that, Lord. And our fear of man is, it goes very deep. At the end of the day, it's a, it's a worship disorder. And we are robbing you of your glory as we regard the opinions of other people with greater power and greater authority and greater weight than yours. And so we pray, Father, that as your church, you would forgive us. I pray that you would grant us the gift of grief and sorrow over the fear of man that's resident in our hearts. And I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and chase away that worry and anxiety and panic. Lord, we are made to fear you alone. When we fear you, we need fear no one. And wonder of all wonders, you've given us the Holy Spirit to lead us forward in our desire to see unbelieving people come to know Jesus. May we bank on the truths that the Bible teaches about you, that you convict the world concerning its sin. You grant repentance and faith. You will even give us the words to say when we don't know what to say. Thank you, Lord, for the great advantage you've given us in evangelism. May we use it to our advantage this week as we seek to be and make disciples of Jesus in whose mighty and matchless name we pray. Amen.